Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 249 of the Spoiler Alert Podcast, brought to you by MovieOutsiders.com. This is Mike. I'm here with Danny, and tonight we're discussing the Netflix drama directed by Steven Soderbergh, High Flying Bird. Danny, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine. And it was nice to do a Netflix uh, movie at at this time of year. We've been in the theater a lot, seeing Oscar-nominated films in the last several months, and now blockbuster season just keeps getting pushed earlier and earlier earlier into the year. We've got a highly anticipated movie coming up next, uh, which we'll see in the theaters, and certain to be a packed house, so... Nice to sit down on the couch or on your toilet to wherever because you were sat on the toilet with a tablet. Let's be honest, it's where you get your private time. Sometimes there's a ninety-minute movement. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) No, I agree, and it's it's always nice to mix it up. You know, we certainly we do that with the the best picture nominees or best picture winners rather. But uh, nice to see a new movie, and you know, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and soon Apple and. You know HBO Go, all these streaming platforms. It's it's really probably the the future of movie distribution. So finding yeah. and watching the films from filmmakers who are embracing that now is is really fun. One thing I did want to just briefly mention last week, we talked about Captain Marvel, and I made an offhand reference to Guardians of the Galaxy three, which from which James Gunn had been fired. Well, it was announced this week that James Gunn was rehired. And awesome. so not Good only are they using him. Good for him. his screenplay, he'll be directing it. Now, he's he had, in the interim from being fired and rehired, he jumped ship over to DC and is actually writing and directing a, a remake or reboot of The Suicide Squad, which we saw a couple Fantastic. years ago, which was a horrible, horrible movie. So they're all going to pretend that one didn't exist. He's going to start fresh with The Suicide Squad and then move right back to, to Marvel with Guardians of the Galaxy 3. So... Great he's, news. He's kind of got his got his feet in two camps there. That's good. You got the cor- the comic book market cornered, right? Speaking of having the comic book market cornered, this week also we saw the finality, uh, finalization of the Disney and Fox merger. So Disney, which owns Marvel, now also owns the film properties for the X Men and Deadpool universes and Fantastic Four. Oh, okay. So right. lots of implications for the future and for comic book movies, though most of those implications just lead to, to Disney CEO Bob Iger just just pumping cash straight through his veins. Like, I think he's just... That's, that's fantastic. You, you know, but before we even move on from this topic, do you have a strong opinion on the Disney acquisition of other intellectual entertainment properties... And they're in a because you and I are both Disney fans. Uh, you know, we we visited the theme parks quite a bit. You used yep. to work there uh, once upon a time. Sure. Um, so certainly, this is something important to us. I find it funny when I hear people who are critical of the Disney acquisition of a property like James Cameron's Avatar. And this had nothing to do with Disney. Why are they bringing it in here? And these are the same people that applaud the acquisition of Lucasfilm and the further integration of Star Wars into the theme parks and expansion yeah. of parks with Star Wars World and things like that. What What's your take on that? To me, it's like, I don't understand how you can be critical of one and, and appreciative of the other. I think Disney does a fantastic job of curating um, intellectual property like Lucasfilm and Pixar and 
Marvel and now the 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 properties like The Simpsons and Avatar and the the Fox properties that they just inherited. But the challenge I think is that Disney has now become so good at that that I think that's all they're good at and that's all they want to focus on. And so mm. I think much to the detriment of a lot of new stories and new content and new ideas, I just don't think Disney is the place to get a lot of new ideas made anymore. Okay. And it's a shame because when you combine Disney and Fox, at least from the domestic box office standpoint, it's a juggernaut. So when they own, you know, 40 plus percent of market share and they're only doing sequels and reboots and spinoffs and stuff we all are familiar with, it it doesn't leave a lot of room for the others because everyone else is playing catch up and they're trying to spin, you know, do their own spinoffs and, uh, they're moving forward with a Masters of the Universe, which is He-Man. By the way, um, that film property oh. got relaunched. I mean, just every week oh, you read boy. about some new property being in, started off existing in intellectual property, and you know, soon we'll have like Slinky the movie, just because it's something. And I think that's really, I, I think it's unfortunate. I mean, I love the big movies, I love the the, the brands, and again, Disney curates them better than anybody, but it just doesn't leave a lot of room on the shelf. What do you think? I agree with you 100% that I think they curate this right. Like, I mean, I don't think they've made an acquisition that has been a bad call at all. And then, I mean, even Toy Story, once upon a time, was not Disney, right? I mean, that before Pixar, that, right, was, right. That, that was a Pixar property, right? So now you consider it so essential to the Walt Disney World experience. But then when they acquire something and then they utilize it to expand their theme parks to expand their brand they do it so well yeah. and, and and they just take it to 11 and it looks so beautiful and and it feels like a part of it always i think my my bigger gripe has always been people that are applauding one acquisition and not another it's like well I, I, how is yeah how is the world of pandora at animal kingdom any less amazing than toy story land at hollywood studios like sure. they always get it right those movies are, are amazing movies and neither of them were disney movies from the get-go right and uh, speaking of Disney movies, let's talk about High Flying Bird, which has nothing to do with Disney. Right. Huge hit. Yeah. Giant awareness of this title. Everyone knows. You just say, <laughs> I just call it HFB because everyone already knows. HFB, everybody, everybody knows. High Flying yeah. Bird, right. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you hit us with a quick plot recap? Let's, let's get into it. Yeah, so... This movie takes place during an NBA lockout, though the National Basketball Association is not actually directly referenced in the film, but it's implied that it's an NBA film and the league is locked out during some sort of strike. And an unpaid rookie named Eric is obviously struggling financially and relying on his agent Ray for guidance. Ray's long game approach uh, starts by staging a one-on-one basketball contest between Eric and a teammate that he's feuding with held at a mentor's Bronx youth gymnasium so that unpaid athletes can usurp the system that confines them during the regular season. This requires an enormous amount of precision to navigate political landmines, including the players' union, team presidents, and others in their orbit with our ulterior motives. But his ultimate goal is to broker a deal between the owners and players' union that will end the lockout and benefit everyone involved. And that's High Flying Bird, right? Did I get it? That's High Flying Bird. 
Catch it? All right, all right. Now, other things I would just mention for those who were were busy chewing, maybe at the beginning of the episode, that didn't hear us. This is a direct-to-Netflix release. Direct-to-Netflix, yes. And directed yeah. by shot Steven Soderbergh. Shot on an iPhone. And shot yes. on an iPhone by Steven Soderbergh. It's, it's, Steven Soderbergh is an interesting bird himself. He is indeed. In, uh, in, in the film industry. So, really kind of considered one of the the founding fathers of the indie film movement yeah. in the 1990s, I think. Uh, his his uh, biggest film early in that area, is, his kind of debut was Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which yep. won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, uh, nominated for several Oscars, kind of put him on the map. He's been all over the place yes. since then. The only director to be nominated for Best Director... For two different films. Now, once upon a time, the Academy used to allow Best Directors to be nominated for multiple films in a year. Right. But he got nominated for multiple films individually. So it used to be you could be nominated for Best Director because you directed these three movies this year, and now you're nominated for that. But it wasn't uh, relegated to five slots. He was nominated for Traffic and for Aaron Brockovich. Right. And frickin' won Best right, Director for Traffic. Right, yeah. He did not split votes enough with himself to take home the damn Oscar, which was kind of an amazing thing back in, I think it was 2000 or 2001. 2001, yeah. You know, but, but then in between all of this, he's directed a ton of huge, critically acclaimed heist movies. We reviewed Logan Lucky uh, yep. a couple of years ago. But, of course, The Ocean's... Uh, series that he directed, which were really commercially viable right. box office hits with tons of star power. Then he kind of retired for a while and then came back and is now shooting movies direct to Netflix on iPhones. So he's <laughs> right. he's been all over the place, this, this guy. He's done TV. He's a producer. He often shoots his own films. He edits the films. He's He's really like a one-man band... But a yeah. but a really distinct brand and sort of a force in the industry, even though it seems like he sort of doesn't like the industry very much. Like he's a total outsider, <laughs> but he's he's got all right. the insider clout. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. So this movie, uh, much like uh, we recently reviewed Roma, Alfonso Cuarón's direct Netflix right. uh, sort of passion project. Obviously, could not be more different. This was uh, not shot in black and white on <laughs> right, an right. iPhone. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. I think that this this was a movie that packed a solid ninety minute punch. I think that a minute longer would have been a minute too long, but it felt just right for me. And I I really enjoyed the themes. I really enjoyed the acting. I didn't know many of the actors in the movie. Sure. Uh, researched a little bit about them since, but uh, I I had a lot of fun with this one. I'm glad we stumbled upon it. How about you? This is a movie I really wanted to love. I liked it a lot, but this is one, and maybe this is how you feel a lot when we see comic book movies. I don't know anything about sports and professional basketball and the different rules and the league, and and so I felt like this was a movie where I was constantly – out of the loop. I didn't understand anyone's motivation. I didn't understand what was going on. I felt like it took a lot for granted that I could keep up and I just couldn't. And so I appreciated the acting okay. a lot. I appreciated some of the Soderberghian flourishes. 
but I didn't understand what was happening 85% of the time. Right down to like, I couldn't tell if the agent was brilliant or, or a good guy or sort of a jerk or really selfish or I just didn't get it. But I really wanted to and it kept my attention the whole time. So I, I'd still recommend people check it out. I just think it was a little inaccessible for me. I would actually echo a lot of what you said in that – so I do follow the NBA. I'm a big fan of professional right. basketball. And there was still a fair amount of what happened in the film that went over my head. Now, oh, okay. of course, I, I mentioned earlier they they don't reference the NBA directly. And I don't know if that's a licensing thing. Right. That Probably, you, you're shooting right. a movie on an iPhone. You don't get the <laughs> – the ability to do this and probably would have cost a hell of a lot more to get their sign off right. on it. Uh, however, th- there were actually a few different scenes in the movie where I was actually able to appreciate that because there were scenes like taking place in in offices between, you know, the players union rep or uh, an owner of a team and an agent and a player or two players where it was almost like a scene from the office like it and it was just like the banality of office politics right. and ridiculousness and stupidness that made me laugh harder than i think i would have if it had been any subject other than B- the nba because to me it's like the nba is almost the ultimate in in like sexiness of sports like this is yeah this movie big diamond that too. rings humvees and like all all of the yeah all of the coolness of athletes are in the NBA. And then you see them like actually going through a meeting in a room and just bantering through just the stupid <laughs> that happens at right. every company, at every level. And I couldn't stop laughing at those. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that is that that's everywhere. Like the poor guy wearing the gold chains and, you know, the four hundred dollar sneakers has to sit through this right. for 90 minutes. It was great. I, I loved that about the movie. Well, I'll tell you, the number one thing I liked, I mean, other than the, I do like Soderbergh's style, and and actually there's a question from the five questions someone brought up about his style's rather hit or miss, or he sort of, he, he shuttles a lot back and forth. But but I like his style, and I like some of the, the things that he does. But the acting, I thought, was uniformly good. And the star, Andre mm-hmm. Holland... Um, he's probably most famous, at least for me, from Moonlight, which won Best Picture a few years ago. Right. But he also recently starred in the Hulu original series Castle Rock. He was in the series The Nick, which was produced by Steven Soderbergh. He was great. And I think the, the woman who plays his former assistant in this movie, her name is Zazie Beetz. She is awesome. She was so yeah. great in Deadpool, Deadpool 2. And I think she is just okay. amazingly beautiful and cool and funny and she is going to be a huge star so every time every time she's on screen you can't take your eyes off her she's she's great so i'm finally almost wrapped up years later with watching the wire oh boy i just started it but like i'm about to wrap up season five of the wire it's 2008 and and you're i i know we're 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 i'm a little behind on, on this one but seeing kima back on screen i don't know her from anything else um so it, she's a fantastic actress as well. So I, I was excited to see her, and I think she's the, I think she's the players. She's the players union rep. yep. representative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, I like the acting. I like the some of the the things that Soderbergh does. The only thing I didn't like was I just didn't understand what was going on. Okay. And it okay. felt like a movie that 
I mean, it felt like a small movie. It felt like a, a small cast that was going to shoot this thing over two or three weeks and just knock it out. Uh, and in the brief research I read, I read that this only took three weeks and that within five hours of finish shoot, finishing shooting, Soderbergh had the rough cut done. You know, wow. he's shooting it on a phone. He probably was editing it each night before he went to bed or whatever. But it just felt kind of handmade, <laughs> felt kind of small. Like, like on his iPad, yeah. he's just like scrolling through whatever. Like while he's like on the train. Free, yeah. free i i app that you can right. get. <laughs> right, right, right. Like I can't even like get a, a rough cut of the kids like spring concert to my mom in that amount of time. That's that's pretty amazing. Right, right. right. I'm impressed. But I can edit the hell out of a podcast. So you surely I, I can. I he couldn't do that. You surely yeah. right. He, he can't. Yeah. Uh, was there anything <laughs> you didn't like about the film? Um, I think one thing that I didn't enjoy about it, uh, and maybe it's getting back to your kind of not understanding the NBA, they had a few actual professional basketball players doing these sort of documentary oh, yeah, yeah. interview cameos in black and white that intercut several times throughout the movie and and I found them all sort of distracting and not contributing much to the narrative of what we were watching, right. honestly, at all. It's like, it, they all sounded articulate, and I bet what they had to say was interesting. It was just kind of apropos of nothing when right. they showed up and started saying what they were saying. And it sort of reminded me of um, Jerry Maguire, when I think like the agent Buddy Fox or something like that. I, or, I can't remember what, what Jerry Maguire's like agent mentor oh, was yeah, yeah, yeah. every now and again in that Cameron Crowe movie he just shows up and does like uh break the fourth wall look at the camera and spout off some sort of stupid cliche <laughs> right. about winning in sports and I kind of found it like that like it was, it was just sort of distracting and kind of interrupted the story and I didn't really understand what it contributed so those things I didn't particularly love but everything else I really enjoyed I I, you know, you, you talked about Soderbergh's style. I thought the camera angles were pretty awesome. I'm sort of blown away when I watch it on a, a high-def television, what an iPhone is capable right. of capturing. Like, we were just going through and, like, purging crap out of our basement the other day, and I found a camcorder that my wife and I had bought a long time ago, and, like, we took it with us on a trip to Australia and stuff like that. I was trying to decide, like, this is like an $800 camera. Should we should we keep it? Do we have a reason for this? And number one, I don't even know if you can buy that size cassettes, like sure. those video cassettes to even record it anymore. And two, I'm like, it really probably does look better on an iPhone, and I think it really does. Steven oh, Soderbergh I'm sure. shoots Netflix movies this on is, Yeah, I mean, this was in 4K. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, the, the technology is better now. Um, that's funny that you mentioned those, those documentary, cause I had the exact same note written down. I couldn't agree more to me. That felt like we were just padding the runtime a little bit, like without those, it probably yeah. like 72 it was almost like to get minutes. To 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. What's up with the the young basketball players pregame ritual being no sex before a game? Like, isn't that the lack of a ritual? Like, yeah, how is your right. how is your ritual the lack of one thing? Avoiding something, right? Right. Yeah, right. I didn't get my that. my pre race ritual is avoiding sugar. Yeah, like right. that's not a. Ritual. I don't eat that's... a whole Chicago deep dish pizza the night before a race. <laughs> 
or <laughs> I should And I've learned that. <laughs> Maybe that infers that every other night when you're not going to have a race, you eat an entire Chicago deep dish pizza. And maybe he's just having sex every other night right. or, or day. Could be. Who knows? Uh, what's up with Kyle McLaughlin in this movie? He has fallen on black days. What is up with him being in this movie and his character snotting in the sauna? The two, He and Andre Holland are <laughs> oh, in the sauna. He just right. leans over for no reason and just does a big farmer blow and just snots out of his nose right. right into the floor of the sauna. What's up with Zachary Quinto being in this movie? He's he's yeah, on screen for a total of, I think, five minutes across two scenes. And with yeah. a movie this small and direct to Netflix, you know, what's a payday for him for doing this, like, six grand less his agent and stylist? It's like he got cab fare and he was able to enjoy, yeah. like, the craft services table. Like, is Zachary Quinto needing this? Or is or is Soderbergh's cachet so intense that the opportunity to work with him, even for five minutes, I, I just don't I, get it. I think it might be the latter. But on that line, what's up with shooting this movie on an iPhone? How does that logistically work? When I think of a movie set... I think of a dude on a crane with a big effing camera and the director in a parka next to him. And and I'm trying to imagine what this looked like. Like, when you say you shot it on an iPhone, did he shoot it on a iPhone? Or does he have, like, ten iPhones and they, they're all kind of spread out across the room, getting the different angles? Does he have a GoPro? <laughs> like, I know with traffic, he, he did a lot of handheld himself, right, right. like, running through the desert in Mexico. I really want to know what that looks like. I'm, I'm. What is up with that? I'm fascinated. Can you imagine it. like the whole crew just standing, like when they're doing the external <laughs> scenes out on a street, and just everyone's just behind one dude holding a camera? Right, yeah. right. Like, is it just his iPhone? Like, like, could you interrupt the filming of a movie by calling him? Like, does his <laughs> wife call him and it like f's everything up? Like, That's funny. or he gets a text and gets a little distracted right. because something pops up. Yeah. If he's anything like me, his his preteen daughter who doesn't have her own phone, but she has a phone, but she shares an Apple ID, so her friends are constantly trying to FaceTime her, but it rings through to to his phone. And then, then just like weird, weird bitmojis come across and you're not quite sure who it's from or, or, you know, it's not to you. And you're like, God, I'm just questioning the appropriateness of that. Just trying to shoot this 4k video for the movie I'm, I'm directing. Yeah. I, I know it's low budget, but it's not zero. Like they're still, they're still paying me for this thing. Right. For the record, this is the second movie that Soderbergh directed on. Uh, an iPhone. So the last one... What was the first? It was called Unsane, and it starred Claire Foy. Oh, okay. Now, that one got, I think, okay. I believe, got a small theatrical release and then was okay. released pretty quickly, either straight to video or video on demand, like on iTunes for rentals and purchase. This is this one went straight to, straight to Netflix. Gotcha. Okay. Mike, are you ready for five listener-submitted questions about HFB? Yes, but let's not dig too deep into the NBA either, because I, as much of a fan I am, I, I don't know that I could answer any more technical they questions. They are all you know. deeply NBA-related, so get ready. Question number one. A few weeks ago, you reviewed The Rider, a quiet, small film, probably best left to streaming platforms, given the changing landscape in theatrical distribution. Are sure. all of Steven Soderbergh's films similarly suited at this point? 
Like, is this just the future of Soderbergh? I, I don't know because I didn't see the last one that you just mentioned, the Claire Foy one. Uh, I, I think uh, Logan Lucky was great to see in the theater. We had a oh, blast. That was we fun. had those one yeah. of the rare ones we were able to see together. And I think that those those ones with their like their fast pace with the constant score going all the time were actually really fun to watch in a theater. And and that just seemed like an, a matinee popcorn movie to be sure. So. I don't know that I want to say that these are all going to be that way henceforth, but this one sure falls into the rider category as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Question number two, uh, actually you referenced this earlier, Soderbergh won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1989 for Sex, Lies, and Videotape and famously beat Spike Lee for Do the Right Thing. And it sort of felt like... Soderbergh and Sex, Lies, and Videotape got all the love and uh, accolades that Spike Lee expected and felt he deserved for Do the Right Thing. Given 30 years of hindsight, do you think that the Cannes jury got it right? And do you think, which which of those two movies do you think sort of stands the test of time better? I think that I saw both of those movies about as recently as, as each other. Like, probably... Five six years ago, I watched them both. That's a tough call. So, I doing a little research for tonight. I realized that uh, that Sex Lies and Videotape was amazingly selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry, yep. which I, I would have automatically assumed do the right thing was. I am a little shocked that Sex Lies and Videotape <laughs> right. was, and. And the AFI nominated as one of the greatest movies ever made. Wow! Like, and I know that they have a ton of lists, right. and and you know that's being a good list to be not on. selected for. But but that's that's the, kind the of greatest amazing. movies ever made. That's a good list. I enjoy Do the Right Thing more than Sex Lies and Videotape, having the hindsight of you know five six years oh, ago okay. that I, I saw them. Well, I'm yeah. sure Spike. I, I would pick Spike. Spike yeah. would feel good to hear that. Okay, question number three. Um, Many directors operate in a one-for-them, one-for-me type of work pattern where they balance passion projects with more commercial fare. Um, Here's a quote that the listener sent in from Roger Ebert concerning Soderbergh. While a talented filmmaker, every once in a while, perhaps as an exercise in humility, Steven Soderbergh makes a truly inexplicable film. A film so amateurish that only the professionalism of some of the actors makes it watchable. It's the kind of film where you need the director telling you what he meant to do and what went wrong and how the actors screwed up and how there was no money for retakes, etc. A, this person's A, do you agree with that characterization of Soderbergh's work that he goes from like commercial hit to just tragic misfire? And then B, do you think that because he does do so many um, sort of passion projects and experimental takes, do sure. you think that he's had enough commercial hits to sort of justify just how, how long a leash a he gets? Yeah. Well, we've talked in the past about how how we get a little bit. Of, I mean, you, you felt Alfonso Cuaron got way too long a leash. You weren't a fan of Roma. You've talked about David Lynch oh, yeah. getting way too long Super a long leash. leash yeah. If there's anybody else that you wouldn't get away with this. I guess, I don't want to cop out of the answer, but I don't feel like I know enough of his filmography and those oh, okay. 
more niche passion projects to they I wish I knew what Roger Ebert was referring to which films he was referring to to see if I'd seen any of them uh, given what I know about him and what we've discussed tonight and what I've researched for tonight it seems like that might be the case I wouldn't have called this one of them though this one I really oh, enjoyed okay. a lot great uh, yeah. Question number four. How is anyone supposed to parse through the mountain of Netflix content to find this film? Does Netflix really want to promote the films or do they not care? Did you see that Saturday Night Live commercial uh, like a few months ago that no. they did where it, it was a it was a gag commercial uh, for Netflix where where they're producing or they're they're creating every movie now for the rest of time and they actually have like an infinity loop so that when you scroll through the things you can never get to the end of it like by the time you get to the end of the scrolling of new Netflix content they've already created more content that you need to <laughs> scroll through okay. I, I and and I was laughing the whole thing because I'm like this is so true when when I when I look at Netflix and what they've picked for me I have to shrug my shoulders and say why right. because and and it's ten new movies released in the last week. Like you, you made these movies for me. You looked at my my little genome right. uh, of film the DNA of your film and then, lights, right? And then made ten movies specifically for me. You you hired you hired talent. You hired directors. Made ten movies for me, and you hope that I pass it along to other people. If that happened on my Netflix account, know. it would be like British baking shows starring unicorns <laughs> in a competition. With one or two killer action sequences that I can watch on a treadmill, like that's what would happen at my house. I'm gonna have to look up the YouTube thing, send it to you. We, sh- we should link to it in the show notes oh, okay. because it was it was hysterical. Like they they got SNL got it pitch perfect of the the overabundance of content nice. on Netflix right now. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, final question. This question says you guys see a lot of films based on the release calendar or on uh, based on movies that you think the audience, the listeners, want you to see. Given that, what is one movie in 2019 that you're actually eager to see? And then this person also asks, what's the best picture that you're looking forward to seeing and what's one that you're dreading? So I guess that's three questions, but. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I've, so the first one is really easy. I've been very excited about our movie that we're reviewing next week, which is Us. Yep. That That's the 2019 release that I am most excited about. Best picture that I'm really looking... Like, oh, gosh, that's a tough question. Like, can it be one I've already seen before? Because there's tons I'm looking forward to reviewing I think I'm seen. interpreting this. I'm going to say it's one that we're hoping the best picture choosing machine will spit at us. Godfather Part Two. I've been waiting for oh, forever. Okay. I can't yeah, yeah, wait yeah. to see that movie again. <laughs> there, I just, not that I need an excuse to pop that one in again, but I can't wait. Right. And dreading, um, probably like Oliver. I, I have oh. no interest in seeing Oliver. That's so funny. That's the one that was that like if I could have written Oliver and put it in an envelope and sent it. Okay. Myself. Yeah. That's so <laughs> yeah. In, endemic of like what I dread when we have to do this picture. <laughs> That, that one's not uh, that yeah. not going to be exciting for me. Yeah, That's funny. Well, that's great. Well, that's five questions. Nice job. All right. Thanks, listeners. All right. Well, you, uh, I think we, we've hashed out HFB, so I encourage people to check it out. I think you would as well, especially if they've got 90 minutes on the toilet with a tablet and just want to <laughs> spend that time. 
But coming up next, we're going to see Jordan Peele's new horror movie, Us. I can't wait. Thanks for listening to the Spoiler Alert podcast. Please visit us online at movieoutsiders.com, where you can see what films we'll be discussing next, comment on our recent episodes, suggest movies to review or topics to discuss, or submit questions for the five questions segment of the podcast. Stop by and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash movieoutsiders, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at movieoutsiders. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast subscription service you use. We'll be back again next week with another episode, but until then, enjoy the movies.